Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandy Schilace, Editor-in-Chief, and today I'm here with one of our editorial board members, Stuart Murray. He's a professor of contemporary lit and film, and he's the director of the Leeds Center for Medical Humanities, about to start really fascinating project. Thank you for being with us, Stuart. Thanks a lot for having me, Brandy. So I know that you have been working on some really exciting things lately, and I was wondering if you want to give us a a little bit of an update about the new project, the latest project that you've just started. Yes, we've just started a new project at Leeds, which is a project centered around whole ideas to do with research and its development, Mm -hmm. specifically around health, space, objects, and technology. So it's called Living Bodies Objects. And what's absolutely fantastic about it is we've got the opportunity to do something which is genuinely a blank piece of paper. Um, One of the things that we've been told about from our funder, the Wellcome Trust, is that we can be as much as two years away from finding specific research questions for the project. Um, And so we've got a three-year project in which we have, you know, two-thirds of it, as I say, uh, can be simply thinking about the very beginnings of the way in which research might address health questions. And so it's hugely exciting um, because of that openness. That is actually really remarkable because that is something you don't normally here, right? Uh, most of the time, it's you hear about research after it's already done. And so I, I'm fascinated by this project and the support that it's gained for looking into these issues um, and, and recognizing just how important the, the question process itself is. Yes, because with a lot of research, we always think we're, we're kind of starting at the beginning. We might say, okay, we're going to do some collaborative research. It's going to be interdisciplinary. And because of that, it's going to be um, innovative. It's going to be original. Here are our research questions, you know, and and the research will start and follow a course. But the truth about that, of course, is that, that a lot of those words are already loaded with all sorts of assumptions about what the research process might be. So if you say collaborative or if you say inter, inter or multidisciplinary, you've actually you're already working with with pretty static and firm ideas of what subsequent research uh, is possible and what we're trying to do is to say and sometimes it's kind of best formulated as a question which would be well what if you had to start before that you know what if instead of saying uh, this is where we begin with our different disciplines you were saying well um Where's the start before the start? How can you first set up a series of questions about what might constitute the very beginning of the research? Uh, and for me, that's that's kind of hugely exciting because even to say that is to bring into focus those very ideas 
of what we think is an original starting point. You know, what is the originality of the research project that's going to follow these questions? I mean, what right. do you do if you don't have those research questions in mind in the first place? How do you quantify where you're going to go? How do you record decision making? All of those things. I, you know what I find really fascinating about the concept of the questions before the questions is to go back to your point about loaded terminology, right? One of the things we focused on so much at our journal is trying to create access and diversity and trying to make sure that we're providing spaces for people with disabilities, for people for whom English is not a first language, for people in the global South to have voices and, well, they already have voices, but to basically be able to actually get those, um, get their words out in public where people can, can reach them. And we don't realize just how loaded so much of the terminology is, how much, uh, how inaccessible so much is to people. And it's partly because we don't even see that the terms and, and the nature of research already have all of these other parameters. Yeah. So, for example, some of the most thoughtful research that wants to improve equality, diversity and inclusion will think about where it might go in the development of the research project. So you might think that you're going to be, you know, starting with research questions, you're going to be bringing in participants who will help you co-design research. But you're absolutely right that in many ways that is a certain kind of formulation that already has, you know, a history and a standard practice. What it doesn't do, for example, is ask the question of, well, where might there be inclusion in the very first formulations of what the research might be? You know, that point about the start before the start. Right. Uh, how how in fact when 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 you're not when you're doing a research project that doesn't involve setting up research questions then where does access and inclusion go mm -hmm. um and i found that in a way what what we're doing is we're forcing ourselves to to look at those questions um and what's fabulous about it is i mean from what we've been saying it sounds a bit like a kind of philosophy project that you can do just by sitting in your front room <laughs> but at, at Leeds, we've got a we've got a physical space and we're developing ideas around virtual space. And in other words, we are we are literally putting ourselves um, in a lab space with all the traditions, you know, that, that, that labs come with and all that I, that legacy of of technological, historical, scientific thinking. And we're trying to begin those processes of thinking um, about how research starts through these ideas of space and through the ideas of of the space between objects, for example. So, mm -hmm. so one one way to put it is the ambition of the project, you know, lies in the imaginative creation of the spaces we're in, and not in any preempting of the materials that they might produce. Interesting. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just recently had a podcast with Riva Lair, who wrote Golem Girl, and she is a disabled artist who, um, you know, and she talks in her book about the, the things that are invisible, you know, mm. to people who are abled or who are, you know, just privileged in certain ways. And all the ways that, and actually Alice Wong talks about this too, all the ways that uh, accessibility is often an afterthought. So it's like, oh, we built mm. the building. Now we need some ramps. 
or we need an elevator or, you know, instead of asking at the very beginning, how could, how could, why do we not involve uh, disabled people in the process? What would be the questions they would ask? How would they look at a building plan in a completely different way? And so um, Riva talks about this. Alice talks about this. Alyssa Burgard is another person we've interviewed on the podcast. Um, so it, it strikes me that the type of research you're doing does many things that, that, that they were talking about too, which is getting behind all of that and going, let's not create the thing and then think about how to fix <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah fix. That's, uh, that's a really lovely parallel because in many ways you know an interesting word you use there is thing you know so the idea is is you know exactly as you cite you know you, you don't make the building and then try to modify the building in order for it to be more accessible um and there are you know many good examples of where good work is done on that but we're taking something similar and talking about you know the research project Mm-hmm. that you don't even start the research project before, not so much even that you've built those things in, but you've asked what the questions might be. Mm-hmm. And so on our project, we've got a series of partners who are going to come into our, our lab as residents, and they are coming in with no expectations on them whatsoever. We've got a theatre company, we've got a charity, we've got um, two charities, actually, the uh, a learning disability charity based in York in the UK, and the Bhopal Medical Appeal, um, which does so much to keep the news of the Bhopal disaster at the forefront of, of public thinking. And we're not kind of saying, here we are as researchers, do you want to join us because we're trying to uh, answer these questions? We're interested in in what happens when when they help not only, not even before formulating the questions, we're kind of like, well, well what is it, what would you want to do? Who would you want to bring in? You know, even even before we ask our partners how the research we might do together starts, we're kind of asking them to own the research and asking them who would they want to bring in in -hmm. order to start thinking. Um, So there's this continual way, I think, in which we're trying to get behind. And that's so dynamic because it does it does allow you to ask some very, very kind of you know, formative questions around health research, around the assumptions and the trajectories of health research. You know, around I was thinking earlier this morning about this, you know, some some really basic things about, you know, the the assumption of of the life narrative, the health narrative, mm-hmm. assumptions around sort of, you know, listening to patients, assumptions around ethics, um, and to to kind of, you know, Go back before the first questions that you might ask about those when you're doing research and just kind of do some whys, you know, like I'm really interested in the idea of listening, whether it's the best idea, for example. You know, it's a kind of standard in lots of medical humanities research that what you need to do, you know, is listen to the patient. And we'll just stop for a second and say, why? You know, what, why, why is that? What are the benefits, but what are the constraints that come from that? You know, and to kind of keep keep looking at those things that are given as givens and try and get behind the assumptions. That's a really important one, partly because uh, and we've talked about this before as well, which is, okay, so listening to patients, it sounds like a easy to accept, right? Like, sure, yeah, we listen, yeah. To, of course, that sounds perfect. Um, but in a situation where it's a medical provider and a patient having a dialogue, somebody has power and somebody has a lot less power in that. It's not an equal relationship. And so, you know, it's important to ask those, how is this an unequal situation before it starts? 
you know, what what kind of conversation is possible? I was thinking about this in terms of non-compliance. I, I wrote an article recently for Wired about this. But if you're considered a non-compliant patient, but there's lots of reasons for non-compliance, right? Maybe you don't take your medicines because you don't understand them, or maybe you yeah. mistrust the medical system. I'm in the United States. Yes. So <laughs> obviously, right, there's a lot of distrust. So you create this situation where you say, yes, of course, listen to patients, but that conversation is never going to privilege the patient with that, that, that patient's never going to have power in that situation the way it might be envisioned, right? So it, herein lies that importance of that question. What do we actually want to happen in that? Is it just about making the patient feel better or do we actually want to learn something? And if we want to learn something, how might that dialogue have to change so that we could, so that medical providers and patients are, are on more equal footing? Is that even possible? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a couple of things immediately come to mind. One is that, you know, if we've had decades now of listening to patients where we didn't have that before, let's look at the fact that there are still huge structural inequalities in healthcare. So that's one of the things that seems like a kind of contradiction, didn't it? We're doing more listening, but the structural problems remain. And the second one is I'm getting very, really interested in the, um, because we're doing quite a lot of work with virtual reality, getting really interested in the way in which certain new um, virtual technologies want to help with conveying ideas of patient experience in kind of non-traditional ways. And one of the things I was looking at this morning, the suppliers of a certain kind of um, technology around body mapping and pain made the point that the average amount of time that a patient has um, in talking to a doctor before they're interrupted is 11 seconds. Mm. So after 11 seconds, somebody comes in and starts to ask you questions before mm. you've probably even got to the end of what your second sentence and saying why you're there. Mm. So I'm really interested in what that means for our very assumption that kind of listening is a good and it's not uh, listening is, is one kind of example, isn't it? It kind of it cascades out from that, that there are certain decisions about, you know, the benefits of technology, um, the benefits of certain spaces. And I think to ask questions about that, even before they're put into research questions around, say, technology, around narratives and medicine and life stories, um, is to is to open up really kind of fascinating critical spaces and make demands. You know, the, it leads you into unsettled, you know, unsettling places and and difficult territory. And that's and that's you know, it, it, it's enlightening and productive. And and um, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, we're only um, we're a month into the project, so it's lovely to have a conversation with you when we're at the you know. The, the start of the start before the start, if I can put it like that. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that not that just, uh, we, we, you and I have spoken about some assumptions that we make about journals themselves, right? And what yeah. a journal is for. And one of the nice things about medical humanities, um, if you're a new listener, we do have the podcast. We also have a blog that we run a bit like a magazine almost. Uh, and then we have the journal itself. So we have quite a lot of platforms and social media presence. And that means... Um, considering what a journal does and figuring out if there's new and better ways that journals can be part of research. Yes. I mean, one of the great things about, about the journal is the way in which it's expanded out through the blogs and the podcasts to try and say, 
we're getting away from the idea that a journal is simply a space for the publication of academic outputs. Yeah, that there are other ways to phrase, to express, and to convey, you know, the kind of work that's going on around medical humanities research. But at the same time, I mean, I think what's potentially quite exciting about Living Bodies Objects is the idea of a project that's a month old, starting mm -hmm. a conversation with a, you know, kind of sector leading journal, which one way or another is most well known for publishing outputs. Right. I mean, the very, the very question of like, there's a why there, isn't it? Why would you do that? But of course you'd do that because the journal is interested in medical humanities research, right? Right. And exactly. this is medical humanities research. So to me, and I know to you, because we've discussed this before, there's, there's such an opportunity there, almost like mm -hmm. for, a, for a journal that you would associate with outputs to follow the trajectory of a research project that has a fantastic amount of space not to worry about producing outputs. Right. But it's still well, focused and, on research. And I think, too, there's a transparency here and uh, transparency and social justice, right, are, are partners often. Because, yeah. you know, when you if you're watching the way the research itself takes place and you're sharing that widely, then you're also inviting more perspectives to comment on what that perspective and what that trajectory might be. And so uh, I think there's an inclusivity built in to a project that can collaborate with a platform, you know, with a platform like this one. And so I'm really excited and, and we're planning, I think, I hope to uh, to keep checking in on the project as it develops to be part of that, because there's there's a real chance to share this in ways that reflect exactly what it is that your project is most, um, the types of things that your project is interested in. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. Some of our listeners will say, well, hang on, you know, you're, you're claiming this is a blank piece of paper. In fact, you're funded, you know, by one of the major funders of medical humanities research, you know, in the world, the Wellcome Trust. So it's not exactly like, we haven't been part of a system which has made this possible. That's true. There's no there's no two ways about that. But at the same time, the kind of hands-off element that we've been lucky enough to receive as we've been developing the research is very true. It's very, it's very noticeable. And one example of that, I think, is the conversation we're having now, Brandy, isn't it? It's serendipitous. I mean, you and I, mm -hmm. in some cases, we, we we were talking about something else. Mm -hmm. And and <laughs> this project, this project came up. And then it was like, okay, well, this sounds interesting. I hadn't thought about the possibility of this kind of relationship between Living Bodies Objects and the journal until we started to plan today. And I think that, you know, that transparency, inclusivity, you know, serendipity is a good friend to those. Because, Absolutely. because it's not, it, you know, if I were to say to you, collaborative research, multidisciplinary research, you know, these things have already have their own spatial metaphors working, don't they? They already have a sense of the in-between or the across. Um, and they, they can be very, very centered around exclusion. Mm -hmm. I, I like serendipity because because it, it it opens up the chance to make spaces for being inclusive and 
And pursuing justice, as you put it, is a really interesting word. Justice, I think, in relation to allowing yourself to let conversations happen. And and also uh, challenging yourself about how you listen and in what ways you listen. Yes. Now, that, that is so important to us because one of the things that we found was really dynamic when we started setting the project up was something that I think quite a few researchers might think is is anything but dynamic. And that would be, for example, data management. Yeah. So mm -hmm. most people maybe who work in medical humanities would think, OK, I know what data management is. I might need to get ethics clearance, you know, to do the things I want to do. Um, I might need, uh, you know, I, I might need to find a way to uh, appropriately archive the data that my project will produce. But when we went to the data management team at Leeds, you know, they were so interested in this. And one of the things they said was, well, how are you going to capture the outcomes of your very first conversations. So nothing to do with whether you need ethics clearance or not, or whether you're going to produce sensitive data. How, you know, your very, very first conversations, can they be captured in any way? And this was such a, a kind of wonderful thing to think about. Um, so we're going to have on the project uh, uh, a postdoc with experience in, in kind of, you know, highly innovative and original um, uh, project capture mm. and you know we're thinking of anything from from cartoons to you know the more regular things such as um, journals uh, filmmaking photography but there are so many possibilities to think and you know and this is a genuine research question is it how do you capture decision making yes well, it's almost an ethnography of of the whole project, isn't it? I mean, in a it, way, it could well um, be. It, you know, if it, you know, these are the words that float around, isn't it? And then it's a good word, and a, a certain kind of ethnography, I think, would be would be a good way to put it. But I find there's so much that there's so much thought that gets prompted from asking a question like that. You know, how did the how 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 to capture the conversations around the very origins of the research, and not just what the research produces right right in terms because, of thinking in yeah. terms of thinking about decision making you know um because uh, the the decisions might that might be made after a series of interviews maybe with a community you know to do with health or to do with disability um the kinds of questions you're going to ask that sort of thing is not what we're talking about we're talking about um you know the very first decisions we made in, uh, at the very start of the project to base an inquiry around objects and bodies and the spaces in between them. Uh, what might be possible if you try and theorize or configure those? So that so the, the decision is to do that, to try to capture that, um, to archive it, to think about what it might mean. And it's tremendously exciting. It is. It, and I, you know, I used to work in medical history museum and I've done a lot of work with museum specialists and curators. And so it strikes me that there's a kind of curation that's going on here. And one of the questions that was asked a lot by museum professionals is, um, is that is another why before the why? What do we mean by curate? Who gets to curate? What gets exactly. chosen and what doesn't get chosen and why? Um, and so to me, this is like a I'm, I'm mentally perceiving this as an almost a sort of online exhibition, an online uh, virtually curated kind of, of 
of example of how research gets done that's trying to be as inclusive and expansive as possible while also recognizing that you can never get all the way underneath anything, you know, and I think that that's, a, that's something that's important too. I think you've made the absolute right spot because it's interesting that we have four planned six-month residencies with our partners. And the final one is with the Thackeray Medical Museum in Leeds, which mm. is the largest specific medical museum in the UK. So there you have it. So we're leading up to mm -hmm. a partnership with, you know, exactly as you say, a medical museum where much of what they do is think about curating objects. So we really hope that after two and a half years, we're able to approach them with, you know, uh, a really developed and innovative sense of what to curate means mm -hmm. and then to see what they make of that and how they want to interact with that. Um, and yes, it could be online. I mean, it could be pop ups. It could be all sorts of things. Could but, be podcasts. Um, it could be podcasts. <laughs> it could here. be lots of podcasts. You know, it could be a podcast every month now that, that we've started. Um, and what's so exciting about that, I think, is to, and this is absolutely key, I think, from what we've done even in the last few weeks, is to say, what's the physical space expression of that? Um, uh, you know, place an object, an object from a medical museum in the center of a room without preconditions. Invite people to move around it to reflect on it without preconditions. Think of all the interesting sort of highly dynamic things that would come from that. But then the pandemic and lockdowns have reminded us that, that our project actually fits with thinking virtually mm -hmm. because there are so many, you know, well, to be even specific, there are so many kind of new health platforms that will use kind of VR ways of accessing the body um, of, of rethinking the body, that suddenly we realise that our idea of objects and living and bodies, those those words in our title, you know, are, are incredibly dynamic when thought of in virtual space. Well, and think too about the, the issues of accessibility around virtual space and particularly, I mean, the pandemic has only made it clearer, but disabled people, disabled activists, disabled bodies, like they have different ability uh, to access things, right? And so one thing that has come about is the ability to go to conferences virtually, yep. which for some people, I have a friend who has um, severe migraines and they're quite debilitating and she can't go to conferences, but if you are at a virtual conference and you know you have a migraine, you can you can lie down, you can come back to it, you can, some, some of them are, are actually captured so that you can return to them later. If you have, you know, um, a compromised immune system and you can't fly around to visit these places or you can't take classes the way an abled person um, might be able to because of various accessibility issues and, you know, timing and all sorts of other things or because you need uh, transportation, suddenly all that becomes um, there's a, there is a possibility of leveling with virtual space. But it doesn't automatically level. It doesn't automatically create accessibility. And I think that's really important, too, because virtual space isn't just you don't snap your fingers and go there. Now everyone's equal. Now we've created equity. It, it actually has to be designed that way. You've absolutely hit on it there. The, there has been, um, I think, huge strides made and, and, and to some degree a sense of surprise, particularly in the non-disabled world, academic world about how 
conferences and events have functioned in exactly the kind of way that you're saying there. And of course, not just thinking about your point about about you know social justice, not just for disabled communities, but for example, I went to a, a fantastic conference where where people from indigenous communities, you know, from all around the world were able to attend in a way that would have been impossible if they were in a physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, the, 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 there are undoubted benefits of this, but there's also maybe, you know, certain assumptions that what constitutes access in the virtual world is, is, yeah, is a kind of free at the point of entry. Um, and it's not. So we're trying to balance thinking about that. I mean, to go back to the, to the, to the, the our starting point about, say, academic health research. So often you might say, right, we're going to invite, you know, people with disabilities uh, onto the university for conversations um, and to tell them about our research project and go from there. But but you know, for a lot of people, a lot of people don't want to come to a university. They don't feel comfortable in those kind of spaces, you know, and so that can really change the dynamic of the research that you're planning to do if you're trying to bring people to you um, and they're being able to work virtually, I think is, is hugely exciting, has got huge potential if you're able to get the technology to the people. And that's what we've been lucky enough to do. We're able to get hold of technology that, you know, kind of VR headsets and the like that we can take to the very people we want to communicate with. Mm -hmm. And we can say, what do you think the founding questions for um, how we're thinking about the relationship between bodies and health spaces and technologies, what do you think they should be? And we go from there. Right, right. Well, I I think this is really fascinating. And we're going to go ahead and, and wrap up now, but I know we're going to be revisiting this project soon. Uh, where can people find out more? I believe you have a website, right? We don't have a website yet, because what we're doing is we're, we're moving to, I mean, we, we so we started a month ago. And just uh, this week, we've set up our Twitter account, which is mm. at LB Objects. Um, LB so Objects. Pe- okay. So people can find us there. Uh, and we're planning for a launch of the project um, officially in May. I mean, one thing worth saying about that is we we are even within the project. We're having to start before the start, so we don't start <laughs> working. We don't start working with our partners until June Mm, because mm -hmm. we didn't just want to invite people into a blank space without having thought about what that space might be. Mm -hmm. So kind of we're working with creative artists and technologists to to, you know, give us a set of thoughts that we can bring to our official opening in in May. and, And kind of that's where we are at the moment. The website will be in place then. But for the time being, we're trying to capture the work we're doing through through a series of tweets we hope we'll be making um quite a few every week well i will i will try to make sure that we uh get our mh handle to follow you and i will certainly look for it myself with at bskilache so it has been so wonderful to have you on Stuart. again really really appreciate this if you could just remind everybody one more time the title of the project is living bodies objects love it health and love health it. and the space of technologies but but it's it's living bodies objects with no spaces between the words nice i like it this is fantastic again thank you for joining us thank you for being part of this and i look forward to seeing what this collaboration um gives us in the future thanks to you and thanks for the journal's interest brandy 
Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.